Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mental Health Without the Bullshit. For today, I want to get into a very particular topic, that being autism. But before we get into the meat of this entire conversation, I have a special guest who would like to introduce herself. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Benita Menon. I'm a school and clinical psychologist. I have a private practice based in the far west suburbs of Chicago, Illinois, and I have the opportunity to serve um, clients in almost over 30 states. Uh, the telehealth, SIPACT licensure and accreditation process was pretty smooth, and there seems to be a lot of states coming on board for that. So it's been a real privilege to be able to share some knowledge and some support for people where they're in areas that are less resourced. So that's been really great. Um, but as a private practice, we serve, you know, clients across the lifespan in person and by telehealth. Um, we do evaluations for learning disabilities, ADHD, autism, uh, my particular focus, uh, you know, over time has become more um, clients in the, who are ne neurodiverse and they might not realize it at, at first, um, but we'll get into more of that, I'm sure, James, as we as we get going, right? Absolutely. And with that, I think the, the basic question to ask to start this conversation is what is autism? It's a, it's a great place to start. And, you know, I really want to thank you for even um, being open to having this conversation because for a long time in my career, that was a really scary word. You know, like even if people, parents or individuals themselves came in, they really didn't want me to use that word. You know, you know, that that other diagnosis, you know, things like, you know, I have social trouble, but it's not autism. Right. You know, I get phrases like that um shared with me a lot so i want to thank you for even kind of opening this up um it's become a lot more available as as a topic you know over time thanks to just a lot more awareness and honestly a lot of the kiddos and and teenagers that i worked up worked with um have grown up and they're like you know uh, we're going to talk about this. And I love that. I know I'm dating myself here a little bit, but that's all right. Um, I like what I do. Um, the the autism that we knew way back, you know, when the term first got coined and, you know, you may have heard the term Asperger's as well. We don't use that anymore. Um, the umbrella of the autism diagnosis really focuses on some significant social impairments. So let's break those terms down. What is social? Anytime you're in a room with more than one person, like you and me right now. So um, what, how do I interact with you? How do you interact with me? How do I make my needs known? How do I look at cues and clues that you might be giving me and make sense of that? How do I react based on the the information that I'm getting. A lot of times clients have told me that they see it, they see the nonverbals, they see the um, the tone of voice or hear the tone of voice, things like that. They just don't know what to do with it. What do I do with that information? Another core um, part of the diagnosis of autism is a lot of heightened sensory sensitivity. So we all have 
things that were, you know, a tag that is uncomfortable or um, clothes that feel too tight or too loose or um, textures of food that don't feel quite right or smells or things like that. What I'm talking about is much more um, than that. It is really way past a discomfort, but a true aversion and really a, a total overstimulation of the nervous system that is highly distractible to the person internally. So they're, you're, they're juggling a lot. There's a lot of internal stress um, as they move around in the world. Um, so those are the two big features. Other parts, you know, there might be um, some cognitive impairments and language impairments. Um, it could be, um, you know, the client that I see could have like cognitive difficulties, like, you know, um, difficulty processing information, but they could also be highly intelligent. So there's quite a range. Um, so that's the hard part about an autism definition and diagnosis is that there is a huge, huge spectrum or range of presentation. But simply put, there are three levels of autism. Level one used to be considered um, the highest functioning that term is not popular anymore um, because, well, for various reasons, but the that also used to be known as Asperger's. Um, and if you were to meet someone with high functioning or level one autism, you would not really be able to tell until you got to know them for a little bit. You know, they might be able to pass um, as neurotypical in, in public. And Level two, you'll see more more moderate levels of impairment. They might need um, accommodations at school and work, uh, might have more significant language impairment that's really noticeable in a conversation. Uh, and level three is highly impaired and needing lifelong support. These clients might be nonverbal, might need um, assisted housing um, support, you know, either um, assisted living of some sort, or they will be um, living with a family member for, for usually a majority of their lifetime. So it's three large categories within, within one diagnosis. So it's pretty tricky, to be honest. Yeah, there is a, a lot of information there. And I will admit when it comes to autism, and anything and everything about it, I'm highly ignorant. I, I worked with kids years ago um, in, on a residential unit. And one of the units, um, as they described it, were filled with adolescent teens who were high-functioning with autism. And that, that is my understanding, level one. And wh what, what stood out to me is, you're absolutely right. You can't really tell until you get to know them. And the only reason why I noticed it was some of the kids when they would become upset due to a change or a particular rule or boundary that they were coming across, their reactions were not what I expected most of the time. Not that they were violent, but it was more uh, highly emotional, more so than someone without autism. And what, what I'm wanting to, to ask you when it comes to the, the different levels is when when is each one most likely to become diagnosed? Because I would imagine level one, you could effectively live your whole life and no one say anything if if people don't really notice, um, or if you know you're not having any interruptions on a day to day basis. Whereas 
level three, I would assume that most parents would figure out relatively early in a child's life um, that they're at a level three. What is, from what you know, your experience, when is each level most likely to become diagnosed? Yeah, you're really on point there, James. Uh, You know, level three is um, very noticeable from a a young age. These are the, the children that we're picking up through early identification services. These are the children who will receive multiple types of support, um, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech and language therapy, feeding support. Um, They really, um, it's pretty apparent that even for like a first time parent that they'll see this child isn't thriving isn't um, progressing across, you know, across milestones. Uh, pediatricians, you know, when they when you do your well baby checks are assessing for all of this as well. They are the front lines. So um, parents, you know, you find out pretty early there. It could be as early as anywhere between one and three years of age, depending on what you um, pick up. Um, and, you know, a lot of times people rule out other things like um, why is my child not responding when I call their name or turning to me like that connected gaze for example and they rule out like a hearing impairment first you know so or why is my child hypersensitive we went to the fourth of July parade and he was having a meltdown in the stroller and you know covering his ears and even with when the tea kettle blows you know and whistles um they're covering their ears of having a really big reaction. So again, out of range. Let's talk to the doctor about this. It's probably a common, you know, so so what's going on? Um, so either like a hypersensitivity or a real tuning out, really noticeable. Language delays um, might occur, like they're not, you know, saying one word and two word phrases. Um along like a typical timeline. And most of the time we adopt a wait and see attitude because there is a range of appropriate developmental, you know, milestones too. Um, Level two probably is like the trickiest one because sometimes we have like typical progression and then we have like a language regression. So we wanna, sometimes we actually hear parents say things like, my child lost language. So they move to a period of nonverbal speech or nonverbal behavior. And that's honestly pretty crushing because you have this perception that your child is developing, you know, typically. And and then there's a regression. There's a lot of mourning, a lot of grief, you know, that we have to process in in session, really sensitive, you know, to that. Um, uh, And then we meet the child where they are you know, and offer the supports and make sure that they have a really good roadmap on a strength space. That's, you know, my practice, um, my colleagues and I really focus on a strengths-based evaluation to make sure we can leverage those strengths, those uh, significant attention to detail, um, like lots of, you know, let's use that asset of hyper-awareness Um, to our advantage. They can be really good at research or, um, you know, picking up patterns and um, following very um, detailed um, instructions to a T, you know, like if you need someone like in a research lab or something like that to follow very precise protocols, these are your people, you know, so as they, as they age up. 
So Lava One, of course, is the one that has intrigued me personally the most uh, because way back, like over 10 years ago, um, 10, 12 years ago, the oldest person that I diagnosed, I think I shared the story with you, um, oldest person I diagnosed with autism was around age 24, 25, female. And I was really shocked. You know, I did all my assessments and lots of digging through old records and interviews and all kinds of things. And I was really sure of the diagnosis, but I was really uncomfortable too. Um, I kind of like that as a professional because it challenges me, you know, um, to keep digging. And I had to think about like, well, why am I uncomfortable? And with, with this, and I, the, the end result was that my shock was how come nobody else saw this all this time? You know, like this person went through public school, had interactions with many, many people um, and really got stalled um, at in graduate school. But what was the feedback? She's in a physical therapy uh, training program and she did well academically, intellectually, you know, did great. But her feedback from professors, I even spoke to the head of the the grad school department um, was that she came across as um, cold, arrogant to like patients and families, spoke in like a lecturing tone, in formal jargon, we call it um, pedantic, which is the term that's usually used, like a teacher tone. Um, it was not um, collaborative, not engaging with other teammates, um, was aloof, standoffish. These are all the phrases that I got. That made sense to me if I look at it in the framework of an autism diagnosis. Because here's the thing, a lot of times this looks like a personality issue. You're not a team player. You're not friendly. You're not nice for whatever nice means, you know? So, but that's not what this was. This person really didn't, didn't have the awareness that, you know, to, to work on that connectedness. Um, and when I spoke with her, she was like, well, I did my job, the, the evaluation, the PT evaluation, the thorough, complete, beautiful notes all put together. But when it came time to add that interpersonal connection, she couldn't do it. She failed her um, rotations twice and she was on probation in the program, which is what prompted the family to seek out, like, is this a learning disability? What's going on? And I said, well, yeah, it is a learning disability of sorts, but it's more of an interpersonal learning disability. And they were quite relieved um, to understand the framework. Um, and the other thing that came up in this particular evaluation, which is really like a turning point in my in my career too, was that this person had a, an older sibling, also a, a sister, and she shadowed her sister through most activities. You know, they're 15 months apart or something. They did all the activities together. Her sister's friends were her friends, but that contributed to her masking, you know, that she was in the shadows and never really had friends of her own or her own interests. And it was only after her sister left the same college and the same program that all of this came to light. So that's why it is so startling um, because we can mask for a long time and be lost in the system for a long time. And, you know, that 
a lot of times there's again a, a grief process that goes with that when people are like i'm not weird i'm not stupid or all the other terms that people have said to me in session you know and they're in tears with like this is such a relief to not be the weirdo you know honestly like to not be called calling themselves that more than um, other people you know so they're very vulnerable to a lot of bullying a lot of negative self-image self-talk um very vulnerable so that's a big one this is really fascinating and and so many questions have come up in my mind to to recap the different levels level three is is probably the most severe in terms of symptomology and presentation and it, it's easier to catch at an early age through early development in comparison to other infants and young children you know within the same age group level two harder to catch it seems from how you described it more of like there's a glass ceiling there that the during early development um, you know, will eventually be caught just because they start eventually kind of falling behind with the, with the rest of the kids in their age group. And level one, I could I could see why this one is so personally interesting to you, is because there doesn't like the glass ceiling on that isn't as low in comparison to level two. Whereas level one, everything seems completely normal up until it's not, and you don't really know when that moment could be. And I, I think the first question. I have in, in regards to social interactions when it comes to autism, what the way it was described to me, it, when someone has autism, the, the part of their brain that registers emotions and social interactions doesn't function the same way as the average person's brain functions. Is, is there any validity to what other people have taught me in regards to the functioning brain of someone with autism? Yeah, thanks to um, more advanced um, imaging technology and, you know, fMRIs, functional MRIs, and, and really, you know, credit to the research community to kind of make use of the technology and have that intersection. Um, we have found that, you know, that there's differences in neurological activity, in blood flow, brain activation. So it's, again, it's not that the information doesn't get recognized, whether it's emotional input from another person or uh, visual information that we're getting from other people. Um, but it is, what do you do with that information? And that is not, those neurons aren't connecting as they are typically expected to. So let's, right now, you know, um, if we're on camera, you and I, James, if you're nodding at me, I'm taking that in and saying, okay, he's tracking. So I am making sense today, hopefully. Um, you know, and if you, if you give me like the, like cut it short signal or <laughs> something like that, I might say, I might pause for a second, need to process that information and say, okay, how do I pivot? How do I change? But Many times people on the autism spectrum will see it, see the signal and not know what to do with it. And they'll just keep going. Just keep going. Where, I, you know, at times in session, I have to be very clear on we have five minutes left or we have 10 minutes left. Or there have been times where I test this out and I actually end up like in, in session, like stand up because the session is over and my client is still going. 
So, and then I have, I get an opportunity to teach that. Just say, you notice that I said five more minutes. What does that mean you need to do? Uh, I don't know. You just were helping me by telling me what time it was. No, that's part of it. But there's something else you need to do with that information. So again, we know that this is neurological and biochemical. There are different um, processes and this is way out of my lane, you know, and Thank you to neuroscience. I read the research, but I don't do the actual research. So I'm going to pause there with that line, but it's fascinating. Um, but we do have so much more support and validation, honestly, that we're talking about neurobiological differences. It is not a personality flaw. It is not bad parenting. It is not a deprived childhood or childhood trauma that contributes to all of this, because we have had all of those theories, the frigid mother, um, the deprived childhood, you know, so we've had those theories and they are not validated the way that the you now biological pieces are, you know, and that's thanks to advances in technology. Yeah, thank you for all of that. That's such fascinating information. I feel like I'm learning so much about um, autism in, in, in general. So if, if someone has level one and no one has said anything, how could this person look for identifiers within themselves? Because I've had clients in the past who have come to me, we're, we're going, doing weekly sessions. And at some point they tell me, I think I might be autistic. And my go-to is, is to ask some questions, what makes them think that. And it's, it's usually almost a hundred percent of the time it's, I don't understand people's emotions. And for me, that, that could be a myriad of things. It could be that they are on the spectrum and that that's justifiable could be that they are just so emotionally disconnected from themselves due to trauma or, you know, lack of healthy interactions that they just don't understand emotions because they just refuse to experience them from their own struggles. But what are clear indicators that someone is level one? Because a lot of people question it, but there's so many different reasons they could be struggling with social interactions, such as a personality disorder. When you were describing an individual that you've worked with who is level one, my immediate thought, honestly, was, oh, this person's probably somewhere, you know, antisocial or maybe something else is going on. But now now I'm really questioning how many people get that diagnosis that might not be have, might not have a personality disorder, but they're actually closer to level one. And because a lot of the diagnoses that we use in mental health space look like a lot of other things, such as ADHD and anxiety tend to look similar. And people who have ADHD tend to be anxious because they have ADHD. And so a lot of us get those mixed up because they there's similar presentations. So with level one, what are the clear cut signals, if if any, that someone might look at themselves in the mirror and say, oh, I might want to go see someone for this. I, I, this sounds like me. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting you phrase it that way because for most of my career, actually, people have come in saying other things. I think I have anxiety. I think I have ADHD. I think I'm depressed because that was more accessible language to them. And it's more, that those are the earlier um 
concepts in of mental health that people had access to even way back in health class and like elementary school and middle school we get taught you know the the mental health unit you know um we get to learn about these things right so um it's widely shared information so most of the time until very recently like maybe five six seven years um people have not come into my office or clinic saying i think i have autism that's a more recent phenomenon fascinating and i, I want to touch on that too but there's a lot of co-occurring diagnoses and you and i james as clinicians we are only as good as the information that is shared with us Right. So um, that's why it's our responsibility to collaborate with other mental health professionals. So I love that doing consultations with others. Um, and I consult with my own peers if, if I have a tricky case. I think it's important. And um, and also to rule a part of I, the way I tell clients is that part of my responsibility is to rule out other factors. So probably the hardest one is the combination of autism and trauma childhood trauma in particular, because lack of opportunity or a severely uh, impoverished um, learning opportunities developmentally or like a lot of fear-based behavior really restricts um, behavior. And restricted behavior is an example of, you know, one of the criteria of being on the autism spectrum. So we really narrow the range, narrow the focus of our actions and our reactions. So having said that, more recently, to your point, you know, when people come in and say, I think, I think I might be on the spectrum. First of all, how brave of them, you know, I really try to meet people where they are, because that is a hard sentence to say, very hard. And we've gotten far with, you know, lots of awareness, social media, you know, people who are neurodiverse sharing their experiences. Um, but it's still, there's a pause, <laughs> you know, that happens in session after that. And, and I really acknowledge people's bravery, you know, really coming in to share that. Um, and then we start digging together, you know, so we, as an adult, you know, I see a lot of clients as adults coming in 20, age 20 to 50, really honestly, anywhere in there. Um, and they are not the best reporters of their childhood experiences. So if I can, I try to ask for, um, is there anyone else that I could speak to? A current life partner, a colleague, a friend, but also from your childhood, do you have any connections? Are you still in touch with your parents? Are they still alive? Um, a sibling? Anyone from different time points in your life. I don't always get that, you know, for various reasons. Um, but I always ask, you know, and that makes for a much better rounded, um, more thorough evaluation. That's how I've been trained to use multiple sources and multiple methods. Um, and, you know, not, and that can be misunderstood. So I really want to take a second. I did a Reddit AMA in back in October, I'm doing another one coming up in um, June. And one of the interesting things that kept coming up was, well, why do I have to include other people in my evaluation? It's my opinion. It's my experience. My parents didn't believe in mental health or, you know, like phrases like that, like they didn't do mental health um, or I'm not in touch with them. I'm, you know, we're, we're not on speaking terms. So I really don't want that to be like an obstacle or a barrier to clients. Um, to come in there, you know, there are tools, you know, 
it'll be it's a little beyond the scope of this conversation to get into like the technical aspects of an eval but um the there are tools for that as well but if possible i do like including it's again it's not required i don't want to create another barrier for people you know feeling like they can have a conversation and figure it out i have um hypotheticals that i run through and ask people to react to certain things. I'm listening for patterns of behavior. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, to your point about personality disorders, James, um, narcissistic personality disorder, um, antisocial, borderline personality, those all come up um, or, or a feel of that comes up. You know, I've always been told that I'm like, you know, um, so, and then, then we start exploring that client's inner world more because they've gotten some external labels and opinions pushed at them. Uh, but now we start exploring in session, we start exploring the internal world. Like when that was happening on the outside, what was happening on the inside? How were you responding? You know, what did you understand? What were you aware of? And I'm very transparent with my clients. And I, I usually say like, I don't know yet. You might be, you know, so I'm not like, you know, like I said, I, I'm very transparent. I say like, you know, I, I haven't figured out how much is trauma and how much is not, you know, so let's figure that out together, you know. Um, so I just recently did a presentation in Costa Rica with for um, a therapist audience really to talk about like very much like what you were saying, James, how do other clinicians know just enough to know like, hey, we have some pieces of information that it could be personality disorder, it could be this, how do I, where do I send my client? What do I do next? You know, so to talk about that, um, how to collaborate. Um, and one, you know, one recent case that I had, um, which was a little bit different was when I had an eating disorder specialist. So that's not my area of expertise at all. Um, and she said, well, the client's focal interest was like food tracking and logging and like a hyper focus. And it was above and beyond what she typically sees for eating disorder clients. So that was her like tipping point of like, there's something else here and how much food played into and food behavior played into social um, and how long standing some of these things were. Um, but even for someone who works in that space, it seemed extreme. So that's something, that's another telltale, you know, so you know your niche, you know the clients that you see. And if something as a professional, something feels off to you or or more extreme, then it's time, time to have a consultation. That's what I would do, you know. Um, Love it. You, you mentioned earlier that those with an autistic diagnosis are inherently more vulnerable because of that. What could you describe the vulnerabilities at play when it comes to, uh, regardless of the level, or if it differs between levels, you feel free to get into the details of um, this diagnosis, making people more vulnerable. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, no, that's that. I'm glad we're going back to that because level two, level three, you have more eyes on you. You know, you have more vigilance around you. Like as an individual, as a young person, um, you're you have a, you with proper diagnosis. You end up getting 
a more protected, sheltered environment, I hope. You know, so in public school, that'll be something like a case manager, a special ed plan, resource teacher, speech and language, social work. They're you're, they're all on your radar. You're, you're on their radar. Um, the And as you grow, you might be like level two, level three might be in some sort of supported living um, uh, place, you know, or program. So, but level one, those are the folks that are most vulnerable because generally speaking, um, autistics come across as younger than their stated age. So if I see an adolescent in front of me, tall, you know, looking like a middle schooler, um, usually they're taller than me at that point. So, you know, um, and, but according to the research, emotionally and, you know, Socially, they will come across as three to five years younger than their stated age, than their chronological age. So that's like thinking of a 15-year-old as a 10-year-old, if we take the two ends, you know. So what can a 15-year-old do? Get into a whole lot of trouble more than a 10-year-old can. They might be in driver's ed. They might be allowed a longer curfew, later curfew, um, more privileges than a 10 year old sleepovers. So they, you know, again, that um, naive behavior, everyone's my friend, too trusting. Um, they end up being really um, at risk for being teased and bullied and not picking up on it. That's, that's rough. You know, not even, they're my friend, but actually they're the butt of the joke instead you know that's that's a lot of that's pretty harsh you know and there are less eyes on like level two level three there are less people aware parents might not even be aware for a while you know so um at all late bloomer you know for a, a female i'll hear things like late bloomer shy quiet bookworm you know homebody phrases like that um for boys i hear phrases like gentle soul, old soul, um, reserved, keeps to himself, man a few words, um, you know, he, he doesn't, he, I know he feels things, but he doesn't show them. He's like a, he's a typical boy, you know, so phrases like that, you know, um, but all of that contributes to the masking, which again contributes to being vulnerable, um, and being misunderstood. So, um, I have a, a, and you know, there are, these clients are in all different areas professionally. So I had a, a CPA client, attorney, physician, um, lawyer, I mean, lots and lots of different professions. And when I see the adults and I, you know, I had one who finished grad school and actuarial sciences, which like completely intimidates me, you know, like, wow, what is that? You know, like, the brainiest of the brains, right? So, um, and he got his first job and Friday, couldn't wait to go home to his cats and his video games. And, you know, I said, so, I said, so you're the new person, you know, like, how are you connecting with some of the people in the office? And he's like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, he's like, well, my reviews are going to be based on the data, like how many calls I do and how many, you know, like there are these metrics. And I said, okay. 
So when, it, you know, let's fast forward to a year. So also knowing that future thinking is, is hard for my clients. So I, I push for that. Like, let's look ahead together. Um, what happens a year from now when you have two hires that have the same metrics of whatever performance, you know, but one person on Fridays hangs out with everybody else, talks about the weekend. On Monday, they remember what people did over the weekend and follow up with them and have chit chat. They go out for a, a drink on Friday and hang out, um, remember people's birthdays. Um, and the other person, you know, clocks in, clocks out, goes home, does all the work, but keep stays in his cubicle, does his work. He's like, you're talking about me, aren't you? And I said, well, I don't know. You tell me. Um, and I said, he's like, but I don't want to go out and have a drink with people. I said, okay. But sometimes we have to do things for other reasons than wanting to. Um, in the future, people are going to notice these things. Like, no, that's not necessarily going to make for a promotion or not, but it does give you like that good feeling about another person. And the client tells me, well, I don't need that to have a good, I don't have good feelings about other people. I don't need that. And I said, okay, but other people do. So again, there's that vulnerability of being judged um, incorrectly or inaccurately because they're operating under a whole different, you know, mindset. You know, I did my job. At the end of the day, honestly, that should matter. But uh, unfortunately, in this world, that's part of it, but not all of it. You know, so lots of opportunities to feel misjudged, misunderstood, and that's what I mean by the term vulnerable. I can I completely agree, and and thank you for explaining that because it definitely gives me a different perception. As you were describing, you know, uh, younger younger individuals and how their parents describe them as being late bloomers or reserved. My my immediate thought, honestly, as you're describing that, is well, that kid's just an introvert. Like I'm an introvert too. I, I don't always like to go out and socialize. I it makes me tired after a while. But as you as you kept describing it, I was like, oh, but that that makes sense though, because if you are on the spectrum emotional reactions and social interactions are different for your brain. So it's, it's less motivating. And if, you know, if there's a sensory overload then you probably inherently don't want to go socialize a lot because it's, it's a lot of information you don't know what to do with. And so it's just like, it's harder. You don't know why. So you, naturally the brain's like, well, let's just not do it then. Let's just like stay home, play games, read a book, be by myself because that's not overwhelming and that makes more sense. And so it makes me really, um, you know, question how many people out there are labeled as introverts or, you know, recluses or loners who are probably just level one, you know, aside from their lack of social interaction, everything's fine. They go to school, they probably get good to decent grades. They're not bad people. They're polite. They just kind of come off as apathetic and cold, which is not their intention. They just don't operate that way. And so there's probably lots of people in vulnerable positions who are level one that just come off as, as, as a cold, distant person who they don't mean to. And when you had said that on average, they're emotional and social development is about three to five years behind. I'm thinking 
what happens when this person, you know, gets into their early twenties and starts making adult decisions such as like loans and cars and housing and dating, or I'm like, well, that, that actually is very vulnerable because our society doesn't account for those things. When, when someone in their twenties, you know, gets their first car on their own, like the bank doesn't care. The dealership doesn't care. It's, can you come up with the money and can you pay us monthly? But for someone who's level one, and going through those interactions, you know, not fully understanding things, that actually is not the same now. Now we're really getting to territory where I completely get why you say they are more vulnerable because they are being treated as, as equals to everyone else, but their brain doesn't process information the same way. And it's not always obvious which is why probably people at level one um, don't get diagnosis until much later when they start hitting repetitive roadblocks. Is is that all accurate? Oh, hundred percent, James, a hundred percent. And you, you know, you're right. The car dealership is not doing a mental health screening before they have you sign on the dotted line and hand over the big check, you know? So, um, but, you know, a while ago we talked about repeated patterns and that comes up like, have you been in debt? How severe is your debt, you know, is a question that I ask has, has, and people are often like surprised by this. So one concept that is um, usually not talked about as much, and I think this is a time to bring it up, is the concepts of part and whole. So when we have um, someone who hyper-focuses and has very rigid patterns of thinking and being, we focus in on the part not the whole. Okay. So I'm usually working with clients in session saying like, here's the, the binocular view. You've got that. Now let's use that wide lens and take a look, which it can be scary. There's a lot more stimuli coming in, whether it's sensory or social. Oh no, I don't want to do that. It's overwhelming. Yes, it is. So let's just widen the lens a little bit. So an example, um, uh, you know, that the my actuarial scientist who doesn't want to go out on Fridays, he like, well, I don't want to go to that restaurant or they, they don't have the beer that I like or the food that I like. I don't want to go there. And I that is a part. That is a piece. But that's not the whole. What is your whole purpose? It's not to go out to eat on Friday. It is to be friendly or show friendly behavior, like a little subtle difference in language there, um, being with other people in your office, but, but outside of the office. That's the whole. It is not about like how loud is a restaurant, how, what, whether, what's on the menu, how, who's going to feed my cat when, if I come home late, those are all parts, you know, and we can solve those. But we have to think of the whole, the purpose of the whole. And so that comes up a lot in session. That's really a good, useful tool for clients to think about. And then they, if they work with me for a while, they're like, I know, I know. You're going to say, let's look at the whole, you know, <laughs> and, and tease me back. It's like, yes, I, I got stuck on the part, you know. So um, to the point where it can really, it takes over. That part, that piece takes over, you know. So let's play this out, James. So here I am getting interviewed by you on a podcast, and we know that it's audio. 
does it matter what shirt I wear today? Does it matter if I'm having a good hair day? You know, like, no, not at all. Um, but does it matter if it's allergy season and my I'm losing my voice? Yeah, I, you know, like, it is peak time for me. Um, and a week from now, I might have had to reschedule because <laughs> the voice is critical, right? So um, hair and makeup, not so much for a podcast. So, but if, you know, if I have, um, if I can't find the quite right shirt to wear to feel comfortable and relaxed to do the podcast, I might get stuck there. You know, a client of mine might get stuck there and they would rather not go to the event or the social experience than deal with the discomfort. So I have clients who would like play volleyball in high school where they didn't want to go to the banquet. They were like, you know, MVP and they, I don't, I'm not going to the banquet or the dinner plans. Okay, why not? And usually parents are like, she doesn't want to go. Can you talk to her? <laughs> you know, and I get shortcuts like that. And I said, well, okay, let's break it down to like, what's what's the issue? Well, I don't know what I'm going to order. I have to look at the person and like place my order. And I, I that's just all like too much. Um, so we pull up the menu, we pick something. Well, what if it? What if they're out of that? Well, let's pick something that's always on the menu, not like a special, you know, um, buttered noodles, you know, something that is safe, you know, easy to eat. You know, you can pra we practice in session, like how to order, use the phrase, um, and because it could be something that to to other people maybe that quote unquote small, it's a really big part you know, for, for the, for my client to the point where they will um, deny themselves a really special opportunity to be recognized for their, for the sport or, you know, that was one, a recent example, but um, so many clients come to mind when I think of this. Um, and I love that. And then they'll come back and say, yeah, it was great. I did great. You know, and it's, it's such a celebration, you know, such, such a, such a celebration really. Them. That's that's amazing. What what came to mind as you were speaking, when it comes to deciding on uh, for someone who's level one to stay in, do their own thing, or to go socialize, it's a much more calculated situation. Because I have clients who are chronic people pleasers, and they struggle, you know, being self serving or being a people pleaser. And that's something I I often help people with is making that decision, setting up boundaries. But their their brain operates and they have a better understanding of emotions and social reactions. And for someone who's level one, because there's not as much value in meaning in interacting, it, it, I would imagine it's harder for them to make that decision because on one end, they know it's important for, for social image, social connections. There is value there, even if they don't personally see it or get it. At the same time, doing something like that is uncomfortable. How do how does someone with level one navigate those choices? Because I would imagine if they always chose to socialize, like their mental health would probably plummet because they're over interacting with people that they're not really interested in. But if they never socialize, right, because of our species and how we operate as people and how important it is to have connections and they they hit barriers, how do you help people decide when it's time to go hang out and have a drink at the bar, even if you don't care about these people or don't care for it versus do something more comfortable, like, you know, 
go home, sit in, enjoy the weekend by yourself. How do you help those decisions? I have a feeling we're doing parallel things, but two ends of the <laughs> of the client population, you know, between people pleasing and pleasing, serving yourself and your, you know, self-interest. Um, but I think the pathway to the center is similar, you know, really to say like, again, you know, for, for autistic clients, they'll, there's a lot of all or nothing thinking, extreme thinking. So I have to go every Friday. I'm never going to go any Friday. There's a lot, there's a lot of range in between, a lot of gray area in between. I have to talk the whole time. I'm going to be silent the whole time. I, you know, I, they'll tell me I have trouble, like, by the time I process the information and I'm ready to join the conversation, the topic has shifted and then I'm stuck. So we figure out ways to initiate a conversation, like take a quick scroll of the headlines, talk about the weather, start with something very predictable that you can practice. Um, you know, I'm the last person who should be talking about sports, but, you know, apparently it's baseball season. So, you know, you can talk about that. So. You know, you know, we find something to start and then be a good listener and to practice certain skills um, and also know when you give yourself permission to leave. Um, you know, you're not trapped for the entire time. You can say if people are like having a drink and then having dinner, you can say, I'd love to join you. I can stay till seven and then I need to head out. And like you set yourself up for a, like an exit ramp. Um, you can sit with people. Place your order, go to the restroom, take a break, step away, come back, have your drink, practice, and then say, it's time for me to leave. Like, you can set those parameters um, and not get stuck on any one part of it. So, like, you create your own plan or roadmap for the evening. Just because the invitation says the party is from five to nine or something doesn't mean you have to be there from five to nine, you know? Um, so we, I, you know, we talk about what parts are you comfortable joining? When do you want to step out? How, what are the words you need to use? The sentences that are um, commonly understood, you know, that to, to get out of a, of a situation. Um, and that is very freeing, you know, for, um, clients. It gives them control and autonomy and freedom. They don't always come back saying it wasn't so bad. Some of them have come back on, you know, for till the next session saying that was awful. <laughs> I got through it. I did it. See, I did. I did it. You know, yes, you did. And it's okay that it was awful. I didn't, I'm not saying you're going to love it and you don't have to, uh, you know, that's, you're allowed to have your feeling on that, you know, a hundred percent. But these are, um, you know, whether it's a meeting in the office where people need to take turns and have a conversation. We all know the person, right, who just sort of dominates a meeting and is like the long-winded one. I I don't want you to be that person, you know, like people have negative thoughts and opinions about that person, you know, and I would love to, to spare you that <laughs> if we can, you know, so... Yeah, as you're talking, I've probably in the past probably have given therapy to someone who's level one because that is the same things I've talked about and said 
about boundaries and compromising and they come back and we're like, that was horrible, but I did it. And as you're talking, I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've had at least one or two level one clients and just didn't acknowledge it because most of their focus was on social anxiety is what they said. And that's what it presented to me as they, they're just anxious about socializing. Um, in hindsight, they're probably closer to level one because it's, 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 it's word for word. What you're describing is things I've done or said very closely and their reactions have been just like that. But I want to pivot to another topic running autism that I love doing and it is dispelling some of the bullshit on the topic that we're talking about. So when it comes to people with autism, what are some of the more common myths that are out there that are completely false? And I'll start with one of the ones that I've heard a lot, just in a general sense, people with autism are inherently slow. And if they're level three, they're always violent. Any any truth to either of those that have been told to me by society? No and no. So <laughs> um in a word. But yeah, the, I mean I'm I'm glad. I really do think it's important um to dispel some of these myths. Um people who are autistic or autistic individuals are not inherently violent, slow, super bright amazing at memorizing things. They don't rock and flap behaviorally. Um, They're not inherently quirky or have like weird interests. It might be the intensity of the interest, but not like, you know, weird interests, like the pattern on seashells. I don't know. I'm just making that up, but you know, the, you know, so it's not so much, but it's the intensity of the interest. Um, people who are autistic are, can be, can work in any aspect of the professional worlds. Um, they, there are some that are probably better suited to some than others, but you know, that's true for all of us, right? Like you don't want me to be your physics teacher in high school. That's not what I should sign up for. Personally, um, you might not even want me to be your math teacher because I, you know, would be like, would have to go back to geometry and that would be hard for me. So, you know, um, but, you know, like teaching, um, researching, there are some that are naturally, there's a better affinity, you know, um, but that's true of all people, right? Um, they are not automatically antisocial. Um, they, it's not that autistics, from what I'm told by my clients, they do desire friendship. They are not all automatically loners or wanting to be a recluse, you know. Um, they just are not always sure how to get there, you know. Um, and also, like, sometimes I get such innocent questions. Like, I had a, like, seven, eight-year-old, and... Dr. Manon, I want to do that thing that you do with your eyebrows. And I'm like, and what would that be? <laughs> like, I said, well, I'm not really sure what you're talking about. So let's, can you help me understand? So like, well, they move when you're talking. And like, it kind of seems like it matches. And I'm like, this is amazing. You know, like this. And I said, you're right. Um, and 
let's we went over to a, a mirror and we practiced like you know looking surprised and like looking like questioning and you know things like that and he it was like a real breakthrough moment um and and he wanted to figure it out it's not that he didn't see it and it's not that he didn't care so those are misunderstandings those are myths you know but he just he had a safe person to ask you know like how do you do that <laughs> you know um and who can you ask that to honestly like there are things you know um think about you know going to a foreign country where you don't speak the language you're going to find your sort of safe person to ask the question to right the person who smiles and kind of looks encouragingly at you at the airport or you know at a restaurant or something um you have to find your safe people so um but there are a lot of myths just like that like they don't care they're not interested they're antisocial those are the big ones angry um, you know, um, can you think of any others or do you feel like we hit most of them? I th those, yeah, you even hit some that I wasn't aware of where were common. The way you describe someone with, with autism, they're normal. They're, they're normal people who just don't fully understand certain, you know, cultural expectations and, and, and assumptions and boundaries. But other than that, they're a fully idealized person. They have their own personal interests, their own affinities. Um, I've worked with autistic um, teens in the past, and that's something that always stood out to me was, yeah, some of the intensity at which they come with um, is is not always what we classify as normal. But the things they do, the things they're interested in is one kid was obsessed with hornets. And it always made me so unbelievably uncomfortable because he would like keep them as pets and like take care of them. And it always made me really uneasy, but I don't like bugs at all, especially ones that um, are, especially ones that sting, but he was very careful with them and he had no interest in video games. Um, he liked to read about bugs and he liked taking care of bugs. And he was always like teaching me about, like I learned a lot about hornets that I didn't know that was even relevant, but he loved to talk to me and teach me about all of his pet bugs in comparison to another kid was obsessed with Pokemon and would just not stop talking about it and learning about it. And he would teach me about things and he would quiz me. And I loved interacting with him because I thought each one of them was such a unique personality. But when, when they were engaged in their hobbies, it was, it always came to me not as weird, but just so passionate it made me envious. I was like, well, I wish I could be that interested in anything I did. Like if I was that more, if I had that much more passion in me, I'd probably be a happier person for it because they're, they just, they just didn't care. He was, he loved his hornets. He named all of them. He kept, you know, the, the, um, the combs that they came from, he never got hurt. And as long as no one messed with his bugs, honestly, the kid was such a delight, such a delight. And it's, um, it's just interesting that the way you describe your clients and the population at large, they're normal. They're, you know, you, unless they're level two, level three, you really wouldn't know anything's going on unless you really look at the behavior, but they are normal people who just um, don't always understand what's happening around them, but that doesn't make them less than it just means that they have to work harder to, to fit in, which is unfortunate, but they are, you know, if I'm sure if we would just be more accepting and open-minded with people with autism, like they would all be healthier for it because we'd be more open-minded to have those interactions. I know when I learned about it through interacting with them, it 
I had reservations at first because of the bias and the stigmas and interacting with them. I realized these kids are just like me when I was their age. That's it. They're, they're super into what they're into. They don't really care about rules, regulations because they're kids. And you know, the only difference is I, my brain understands reactions and, and, and social interactions that their brain doesn't really process, but that's it. That's really the only difference from my perspective. It's, it's just that. So if we, ignore that part. Yeah. They, they're very normal people who are very caring and kind and loving. And sometimes I miss those kids because it was just so fascinating to watch them interact. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's beautifully said, James. And, you know, like we need, we need the Hornet researchers in our lives. I'm not going to do it. Are you going to do it? Absolutely I'm not. not. <laughs> we need those purists you know we need people who are going to do deep dive research into the honeybees and to you name it you know um because like you and i aren't going to do it so like somebody needs to right so we need uh, we need everyone to be fully act you know activated and um and have permission to do that give themselves permission and societally, you know, give them permission because we need um, the deep divers, you know, I mean, that's how we learned so many things that we take for granted now. We're created by the people who, you know, were like, this is a hyper-focused, detail-oriented person who stayed in their room in their garage and tinkered with something until they figured it out. Um, you don't have to look too far at all the technology we're using today to 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 realize that. Um, and whether it's in nature or science or technology, any area. So I didn't come upon this niche of mine directly. It was very much an indirect, you know, stepping stone experience professionally to kind of, you know, working through like languages and the like, you know, I'm of Asian Indian origin and grew up in the U.S. And so that immigrant experience, learning different languages. Um, and if you take language at a more abstract level, like social language, um, the pathway is the same. Like you have to figure out the code, right? Um, and, and take it from there. And um, if you see someone speaking a verbal different language, you can make sense of that. You're like, okay, so they speak Portuguese or they speak Italian. And so it's okay that I don't understand what they're saying because I never learned those languages. Fine. But if you see someone speaking, you know, or behaving within certain expectations of a social language, well, you look the same as me. You should act the same as me. And that's where we run into trouble. So, you know, so thank you for highlighting this um, and taking the time you know, um, putting a spotlight on this because like, you're right. There is a lot of underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed people, especially level one. Um, and it's really important to seek out if you're curious, you know, seek, seek that out. And, and then there are resources that can match you better than like maybe an incomplete experience of being treated as like people pleasing or social anxiety or a personality disorder it may not feel as complete of a support for you, you know, and the therapy doesn't have to go on forever. You know, it's really meant to 
um, there's a lot of free and inexpensive resources out there too. It's not like you have to be in an office in private practice once a week. Or, you know. That's why I like doing podcasts and AMAs and lots of blog posts on this because there should be, you know, we should be giving the stuff away for good access to good information. I, I completely agree. It's why I have my podcast. <laughs> it's it's the best way I know how uh, with my skill set to engage in just more free resources. And one thing I've always learned and thought about with, with people in the mental health space like us is we're really good at talking about the things we're passionate about. And I'm so interested in everything relating to, to mental health. Um, it's, it's always, and I've learned so much from all these conversations. It's, it's fascinating to me. And it, I believe this podcast is, uh, which wasn't my intention, but it's actually making me a better therapist because I'm learning more about other topics. And for me, it's one of the biggest things I got from this is when someone tells me they believe they have autism, odds are if, if they do, it's level one because people who are level two, level three won't come find me. It's not something I specialize or advertise in. And the thing to look out for is, is to see, you know, the details and, and the patterns of their behavior and responses. And, you know, at that point, if, if I'm noticing things, then I refer out because now I have a better understanding of what to look for, what it, what it seems like their responses. As I've mentioned earlier, I probably have given therapy to at least two people in the past who are level one, just based off of they are coming to me with social anxiety, um, which is, is pr probably accurate that they are anxious about socializing and interacting, but just the, the, the way they think and interact in the responses I had are very similar to what you described with your clients. So that now I know moving forward, these are indicators for level one autism. Let's explore that. And if, if I'm feeling and noticing things and yeah, you, you might um, have that diagnosis, but it's up to someone who knows more than me who specializes in autism to, you know, fulfill that role for you. So it's, it's made it easier for me to not only notice it, but to also refer to the appropriate people for this and understanding even with level two and level three, that, you know, it's, it's a team effort. There's staff involved. There's a lot more other specialists involved. Um, and that's information for, I think for, for me, for parents, you know, if they're discovering their kids got something going on, they're not sure. And it comes down to autism. This podcast is going to help the people on all levels have a better understanding of, you know, what are the next steps? And I know we're running out of time here and there's so much uh, on our outline that we could not get to, which is unfortunate, but there's already such a massive amount of information here. My last question for you before we sign off, if anyone's listening and feels like you're the right person for them or that you could be a resource for them to get help or to help someone they care about, how can we find you? Okay. Yeah. Um, my website address is probably the first place to go. It's the good old www.mythrivecollective.com. Um, uh, Thrive Collective is the name of uh, private practice, and that's where I hang out most of my working day. So you can schedule a free consultation that way. We have an office manager, a practice manager. She's awesome to help you get connected. Um I'm booking out quite a bit. So if you, if someone is seeking support, if you email and reference this 
podcast, you know, I'd be more than happy to figure out a time to connect and have a brief conversation, even if that means, you know, the actual session might be a little bit later. Um, that's why actually I have a practice manager because she keeps me like, no, no, you're not going to offer like every hour of every day. You can't do that. So, you know, I do appreciate my colleagues for that. Um, but that's where you can find a lot of free resources too on the website in terms of um, previous presentations that I've done and other live streams and, and podcasts and things like that. So, um, and book resources, things like that. You know, I think that would be a really great first place to start. Um, but thank you again, you know, for the opportunity. I was intrigued by the, the name of your podcast, which I was like, well, that speaks to me, you know, like, let's just cut it all out and just get to real talk, you know, and so thank you for the time uh, together today and, and to be able to share some information, dispel some myths. It's been a really great conversation. So thank you for that. Oh, the, the honor is all mine. It, it was, this podcast has been such a blast. You have so much knowledge and, and expertise in this. And I love that your approach to helping people with autism is to you know encourage acceptance and to normalize their experiences and to validate and acknowledge, you know, the things that they're dealing with. And I, I love that approach when it comes to counseling to just let that person know that it's okay for them to be them. There's nothing wrong. It, it's just, some of us have, you know, struggles that others don't, but that doesn't make you less than. It just means that this is your journey and the goal is to help you find a way to, to navigate it as, as efficiently and effectively with as much joy as we can find within it. And I, I love that you're doing this type of work with people diagnosed with autism because I think um, you're absolutely right. They're, particularly for level one, it's, it's very vulnerable. And those of us who don't understand autism at all don't really get it. And, you know, that's something I understand more now than I did before is, is the level of vulnerability that it creates that is not often spoken about or thought of or considered when making important decisions, you know, really clarifies how important it is that we as a society improve our efforts to have a more accurate diagnosis. Because I'm sure a lot of people level one are misdiagnosed. I'm sure I've done it too. Because I've worked with clients, I didn't diagnose them as autism. I didn't refer them out. I saw them both uh, for social anxiety, and you know, thinking back, I'm like, they are meeting all the markers that we talked about when it comes to interactions and masking and things like that. And I was not trained in something like this, but now I know better. So I'm I'm thankful for you to open up and to talk about this because I think the more discussions we have about topics of mental health the better our entire society is as a whole. And the more we uplift people who, who need help that often don't get it. So this, this definitely helps people not fall between the cracks. So honestly, uh, thank you for giving me and the listeners the time to, for you to just shine and talk about your passion and you're so passionate about it. It's, it's very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. With that folks, if you listen all the way to the end, thank you so much. That's all I have for you today. Enjoy, and I'll catch you next time.